Well, amen. I'm glad you're here for a brand new series on answers for today. And over the next number of weeks, we'll be looking at a lot of topics like uh, how do I know that the Bible is true? And is there such a thing as right and wrong? Does hell exist? Um, uh, is Jesus the only way to God? Um, why should I be born again? Are the Ten Commandments for today? These types of questions. And today we're going to look at the existence of God. And uh, the question for today is, how can I know that God exists? You know, sometimes uh, i found the people that have sort of a hard time believing in God, and maybe they're just natural doubters, uh, maybe, maybe they're cynics, uh, maybe they just, um, maybe they're real cautious, you know, they don't want to be duped by somebody. Um, I've encountered people that don't believe in God because someone hurt them. And they've had a, a bad hand in life. And so they, they believe that God somehow must not exist. Maybe it was a dad or a mom or a priest or a pastor or a deacon. Or maybe, you know, like someone like that. Someone who's supposed to represent God that actually turned out they did a bad thing and caused a lot of spiritual damage to somebody you know, most of the time when the Bible talks to us and the Bible communicates to us as we read it, it comes from a viewpoint of simply assuming that God exists. And uh, it assumes that we believe in God, and, and that's the starting point. We move on from there. But there are a few places in the Bible that deal with the idea of atheism, the, the idea that, that maybe God doesn't exist. And one of those passages, and it's just a... A verse in the Bible, but it's Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. And in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, uh, this passage, before I, I read it to you, I, I want to warn you that a lot of atheists don't like this verse. Um, it seems to put them down. It seems to call them a name. And that's not very nice, is it? Uh, but I want you to understand something. The purpose of Psalm 14.1 is, is not to call you a name if you don't believe in God. The purpose of Psalm 14.1 is to give you a warning. It's sort of like this. Let's suppose you're driving down the road and, and someone just blares their horn at you. And you think, how rude of them to do that. But what if you were distracted? And you started to drift into oncoming traffic. And that same horn blaring at you no longer is rude, is it? It saved your life, perhaps, because it communicated something to you. That rude horn said, excuse me, if you wouldn't mind, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, might you go back into your own lane? Instead of watching that TikTok video on your phone while you're driving? Might you get control of your car and not kill us all? That's what that rude horn says to you. And so when we read this little verse, I hope you're not too offended when God says to you, you're going the wrong way in life. It serves as a warning. Here's what the verse says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So is the Bible right? Is the person 
who doesn't believe in God as foolish as a person drifting into oncoming traffic. And even if the Bible is right, and I personally believe that it certainly is, maybe you need some convincing that God exists. And if you're here today thinking, yeah, I'd I'd like some convincing that God exists, that's okay. Uh, Let's explore this idea of God's existence. And first, we need to define what we mean when we say the word God. When we talk about God, what do we mean by that? Well, God is a lot of different things, more than simply what has arrived on the screen behind me. But these things certainly describe some of the attributes or characteristics of God. God is absolutely necessary. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that He is necessary for any of us to be alive. He is necessary for this world to be here. And am I necessary? No. This world will carry on without me when I'm gone. But God is absolutely necessary. God is self-existing. God is personal. He's not a force out there. He's personal. He is a person. God is intelligent to a degree that we cannot even comprehend. God is volitional. That means that God has a will. God decides things. God does things. God is absolutely good. When we think of God... We think of him as being good. God is creator of all things. God is the cause of all things. God is the sustainer of all things. Not only did God create the world, but he actively sustains the world. And you find your life and existence in his hands, if you will. God is providential. That means that God has a purpose in doing things, and God has directed certain things. He is the director of all things. And God is transcendent. That means that He is above all things. God is not a rock. God is not in a rock. God is above all things. And so we reject the idea of pantheism or panentheism, uh, but God is completely transcendent. And so for the rest of this sermon... I want to propose to you, when I talk about God, I'm talking about the being that is all of these things and so many more. I'm talking about Him. And I want to propose certain arguments for the plausibility of God's existence. Now, why do I say plausibility? Well, I don't use the word certainty because even though I'm convinced that God certainly exists, I'm not going to use that word, and I I don't use the word proof, even though I need no proof to know that God exists. But I use the word plausibility for this reason. You see, because God is transcendent, He is beyond scientific proof. If God could be proved scientifically, then science would be greater than God, and it is not. If God could be proved by natural observation or by some mathematical calculation or by some reproducible scientific experiment in a lab, then he would not be God. 
At least he would not be the God that we've described so far. And the God that we've described is the greatest, and he is the only, and he is the highest, and he is the most. This is the God that I'm talking about, and he cannot be proved scientifically. He cannot be proved simply through reason. And if God could be proved scientifically, then there would be no need for faith. There would be no need for belief in him. And belief stands in non-contradiction, excuse me, it stands in contradiction to non-belief. Either you believe in God or you don't, one or the other. And so these two ideas, either you believe in God or the contradiction to that is you don't believe in God. It is one or the other. And this idea of belief is very important because your belief in God or your non-belief in God, it is an expression of your free will, which, by the way, is another very important characteristic of God. God is free, and He has created us to be like Him in this respect. We, too, are free beings. We are free to believe in Him and worship Him and love Him, and we are free to not do any of those things. This very important thing that we call faith or belief, it is the key to knowing God, and it resides outside of the bounds of scientific provability. God has ordained that belief is the key to knowing Him. In other words, God will not be found without faith. He will not be found. Why is this? Why hasn't God simply made himself provable through science? Why hasn't God just written in the clouds, Hi, I'm God, here I am. Why hasn't God done that? Why does God require faith? Because God wants people to be a part of his family who believe in him. And If you don't believe in him, well, there you have it. To you, God might as well not exist. In the end, whether or not any of the arguments that I propose in this sermon give you evidence of the existence of God, whether these arguments are coherent or understandable, in the end, you must make a decision about your faith. Either you believe in God or you don't. And I would encourage you to understand that this is more than simply an academic exercise. This is simply more this is more than simply a, a philosophy class that at the end of the day you can just ignore. This is more than just a theory. There are real life consequences to whether you have faith in God or not. And some of those consequences I certainly believe extend beyond this life. So let's jump in. I've got about 20 or 25 minutes to convince you that God exists. Now, let me say a quick word to you Christians, who I'm certain make up the majority of this audience today, and you might be thinking, well, I don't need this sermon. I don't need to know that God exists. I already believe in God. Well, that's good. So do I. 
But if you pay attention and perhaps even take notes, you might be able to help somebody in your life that doesn't believe in God understand that he exists and he is worth believing in. Now, one argument for the existence of God is that he is the cause of all things. It goes like this. Premise number one. Hold on. Are you ready for this? You exist. That's where we start. We start with the existence of you. I hope I don't have to try to convince you that you actually exist, okay? We're going to move on to premise two, assuming that we all believe that you exist. Premise two, your existence is contingent on something outside of yourself. I am not self-causing. You are not self-causing. Something caused me to exist, and something caused you to exist. In fact, let's think about everything and every, every, everybody else, anything else and everything else, other than God, everything's existence was caused by something else. Everything is contingent on something outside of itself. And so we reach the conclusion. The conclusion is this. A prior being must exist that is not contingent on other things. This being is absolutely necessary for all other things to exist. And this being is transcendent over all other things. This being is God. You see, there are really only two possibilities. Either there is a first cause, who is God, and this first cause is absolutely necessary in a sense that everything eventually leads back to Him, and this first cause, being God, is transcendent in the sense that he is not like everything else. His existence is not contingent upon something outside of himself. That is possibility number one. Possibility number two is this. That all of these contingent existences, you and me and the bugs and the earth and the stars, all of these existences that are contingent upon something else exist continue to exist, dating back to infinity past. And if you choose not to believe in God, then everything is contingent upon something prior, and that list of contingent existences has no beginning. It is literally infinite. The causal argument for God demands that one of two things to be true— Either the conclusion on the screen that God who is absolutely necessary and transcendent, He exists, or literally there is an infinite number of prior causes with no beginning. Now, if I can shoot enough, a big enough hole in the argument that there's an infinite number of prior causes that leaves you with only one conclusion, that's that God exists. So let's take the state of the universe. Let's suppose that we had the ability to somehow, every 10 minutes, we could take a snapshot of the state of the universe. And we get out our old Polaroid, and we were able to print it off on our Polaroid camera. And there'd be a snapshot 
of the entire state of the universe. And ten minutes prior, there was another snapshot of the state of the universe. And ten minutes prior to that, and before that, and before that, and so on. If everything that exists is contingent upon something prior to it, and there is no first cause, but this stack of Polaroids extended into the past indefinitely, how many snapshots would have been taken to get us to this very moment in time? It would be an infinite number of snapshots, correct? And you would say, right. And yet, ten minutes from now, another snapshot would be taken. We have to increase the infinite number of snapshots by one in ten minutes. Now, in mathematics, this is possible in theory. But in reality, however, a time-bound series of snapshots, ten minutes apart, extending into infinity, and then adding one is self-contradictory. Why? Because when you add one to it, the previous stack of Polaroids was not infinite, was it? It is self-contradictory and therefore cannot be true. If you already have an infinite number of snapshots, it cannot increase in reality, not logically. The only non-self-contradicting logical con conclusion is that God exists. He is the uncaused cause of all things. Now, is that proof? of God's existence? No, not for the person who refuses to believe. But it is more plausible than an infinite number of contingent existences. But let's look at this idea of God a different way. Let's look at the idea of purpose. The idea of purpose. Here's premise number one in this idea. Everything has a purpose. Now, some doubters might want to argue this. They'd say, no, 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 no. There are some things that have no purpose. For example, I could take a pair of fuzzy dice. And I could roll this pair of fuzzy dice and get some completely random result. Did the result that I have, that I got, does it have a purpose? Is there a purposeful reason that that result actually re resulted that way, or was it simply the byproduct of chance? It wasn't a purposeful result. It was a random result. However, I would respond that even with something as trivial as the rolling of dice, the result happened within the context of purpose. In other words, yes, the result may seem random, but the act of rolling the dice had a purpose. The random action resided in a greater purpose. Why do humans purposefully roll dice? Well, either to play a game or to make a sermon illustration, one of the two. You see, even the most random acts, which seemingly have no purpose, are done within the context of a greater 
purpose. And so premise number one stands. Premise number two, the space-time universe itself is a complex composite that is filled with purpose. So whether you want to look at the largeness of the universe or the smallness of the smallest part of the universe, you have to agree that it is complex, wouldn't you? And it also is purposeful. Consider a few examples. Consider how inorganic material like the land or rocks or water or air, stuff that is naturally inorganic, consider how inorganic material supports the production and maintenance of life. You cannot have life without inorganic material. Or consider how an organic being, such as your body, is able to adapt to its surroundings. You go outside and it's 100 degrees, what does your body do? It adapts, it starts to sweat. You go uh, up into the Arctic and it's very cold, what does your body start to do? It starts to shiver. It starts to adapt to its surroundings. And so, if this is true of these elements within the space-time universe, it's true of the entire thing. We have a complex composite in the space-time universe, and it is filled with purpose. The conclusion is this. The intelligence needed to have a composite as complex and as purposeful as the space-time universe necessitates the existence of God. The order of the universe is so significant that it can only be the product of God's purposeful activity. In other words, there's a reason God created and maintains the universe. And the very orderliness of His universe declares the glory of God. Now, if you reject this line of thinking, then you have to accept the alternative. That everything that exists does so in spite of the fact that it has no purpose in existence. So is that proof of God's existence? No, not to the person who refuses to believe. But it is more plausible than the alternative that all of the purposes that fill up the universe have no purpose. But let's look at this idea of God a third way. Through the lens of the design of humans. Here's premise number one. The highest class of creature is self-aware and it can conceptualize the universal nature of things. Let's talk about what this means. We humans are in a class unto ourselves. We are greater than dogs or dolphins or doves. The uniqueness of humans, it does not reside in our bodies because all creatures on earth have incredible and unique bodies suited just for them. The uniqueness of humans does not reside in our ability to carry out goals. Even the little ant carries out certain goals. It builds an anthill. It feeds the queen. It fights off intruders. But the uniqueness of humans resides in the capacities of our spirituality. Not only are we conscious creatures, and most of you are still conscious 
in spite of this sermon. Not only are we conscious creatures, we are aware of our consciousness. Now you take someone who is having certain types of issues with dementia, and you discover that while that person might be conscious, they might be awake. They may have lost the ability to be aware of their consciousness. They're awake, but they're not really there. But that's not the normal state of humans. The normal state of a person, of a human, is that we are conscious and we are aware of it. We are self-aware. In addition to our self-awareness, each of us can understand the idea of concepts. For example, we all know what music is. Music, it's a concept. It's this universal idea of a concept, of this idea of music. We can conceptualize the universal nature of music. And not only do we recognize concepts in, in general, we recognize particular things which exemplify those concepts. We know what music is generally, and we know what it might sound like specifically. Like Elvis singing Heartbreak Hotel, and I'm being told right now not to do it. Thank you very much. All right, so I won't do it. But we know what music is generally and specifically, don't we? We understand the idea of concepts. So premise number two. Our ability to be self-aware and to conceptualize things makes self-direction possible. What does that mean? It means we call our own shots. We do what we want. We are not like a dog which will follow its strongest, most base instincts. We can tell our more base desires, no. Now someone might say, well, you know, we can train dogs to put aside their base desires. Oh, I agree. Think about what you just said. We can train dogs. We humans who are self-directing can even train those creatures that are not self-directing. But there is not a dog in the world who will train himself not to eat a nice juicy steak that has dropped on the ground. You see, not only can we refuse our most base desires, we can even redirect those base desires to the pursuit of our own goals. This is something that lesser creatures cannot do. Self-direction is possible because of our self-awareness and our ability to conceptualize things. Conclusion. We have a spiritual dimension that cannot merely, or be explained merely as the product of biological forces. We are created by God. You see, nature cannot evolve in such a way as to teach those beings that are natural, to reject nature's impulses. It is beyond the scope of nature to do that. Now, is that proof of God's existence? Not for the person who refuses to believe. But it is more plausible than the alternative. Nature causing the rejection of nature. 
There's one more argument for God that I'd like to share with you, and it is the moral argument for God, at least one of many moral arguments for God. And it goes this way, premise number one. There is evil in the world. I hope you'd be able to accept that premise. I think most, most of us really would. You look at the terrible situation in Uvalde, you look at ter- the terrible situation all over the world, you think of uh, uh, crimes that may have even been committed against you, and you would say there's evil in the world. There are just some bad people. There are some bad things. There's evil in the world. And so we would, I, I think most of us would accept this idea, this premise, that there is evil in the world. Premise number two. If evil exists, then so does good. And I don't think any of us would have a problem there. Premise number three. To, dif- to differentiate between good and evil, a moral law must exist. Now let's stop here for a minute. Because this is the place where most doubters of God would want to argue. They would say, no, 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 there's no need for a moral law. Morality is whatever we decide it is. But that begs the question, if no moral law exists in actuality to distinguish between good and evil, then there is no such thing as evil. What we would consider to be evil acts are completely arbitrary, and they're completely neutral. If there is no moral law, then the Holocaust was not evil. It was just something that happened to some unfortunate folks. If there is no moral law, then criminal acts are not really criminal. They're simply acts. And we owe a lot of apologies to a lot of people in prison. If there is no moral law, then acting in such a way as to save a person's life is not good. Nor is it commendable. It's just something that might happen. But most of us accept the premises of one and two. That evil exists and the good exists. And if you accept those premises, you must also accept premise three. A moral law exists. Conclusion, for a moral law to exist, there must also exist a moral lawgiver. This is God. How could a universal moral law exist if it is simply something that we've created? It can't. And so the whole deck of cards concerning morality comes tumbling down without God. Now, is that proof of God's existence? No. Not to the person who refuses to believe. But it is more plausible than the alternative. That good and evil don't exist. You see... When you think about the existence of God, you need to think about the high plausibility that all things that exist are contingent on Him. You need to think about the high plausibility that the space-time universe, in all of its complexities and purposefulness, owes its existence and sustenance to an intelligent being. And you need to think about the high plausibility That the spiritual dimension of humanity, how our self-awareness and ability to conceptualize allow us to be self-directed, is given to us by someone who is likewise self-aware and capable of conceptualization and self-directed. And you need to consider the high plausibility 
that since good and evil exist in the world, so does a moral law that distinguishes between the two and therefore necessitates a moral law giver. However, if you deny the existence of God, then this is what you must believe. You must believe in the contingencies of all things being extended into infinity past. And you must believe that the complexities and purposefulness of the space-time universe created itself and exists by its own determination, which has no purposefulness in it. And you must believe that humanity's self-awareness and ability to conceptualize and direct itself is a product of lesser creatures that have none of those capabilities. And you must believe that there is no good and no evil in this world other than them simply being labels that we place on things. I don't know about you, but given all of the things that I would have to believe to be an atheist, I don't have that much faith. In fact, faced with these arguments alone, I would have to agree with Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God, however, wants to rescue us from our foolishness. He wants us to believe in him. He wants us to know him. How can I know God There are certain things that I need to believe. I need to believe that God became human in Christ. And I need to believe that Christ died for our sins once for all time so that he might bring us to God. That he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And I need to trust in Christ. And surrender to him as Lord over all. If I would agree in my heart of hearts with these things, then God will come into my life. And I will know him. And he will know me. And that is the greatest calling that any of us could ever hope to attain. To know God.